So I'm going to continue on the series that Josh has been teaching about here um, called The Humble King, uh, which is where we're looking specifically um, at Philippians 2, uh, the first 11 verses, uh, where Paul is talking about what it means to imitate Christ's humility um, through the way that he lived his life and how we can do that in our own lives individually, um, but also together as a community. So if you guys want to open your Bibles with me over to Philippians uh, chapter 2, I have a Bible up here with me, definitely because I wanted to read from a Bible and not because I forgot to put the verses in my notes. Um, You feel like you're like, I got everything down. I put everything in there I needed to. So close. Um, but it's there anyway. So if you want to read along with me, feel free to. Um, but this is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen to that. So this morning, I am going to key in here on 2, 3, and 4 that we just read. Uh, The prompt I was given from Josh was uh, humility and joy uh, and sort of the intersection between those two things and how they interact with one another and how maybe one robs us of the other, perhaps. Stay tuned to figure out which is which. Um, But let me just read verses 2, 3, and 4 again for you real quick. Paul is saying, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. What Paul is talking about here is that there is a joy available when we practice communal humility as a church. But it requires us to forget ourselves in a way of speaking and open our eyes to the world and the people around us. What keeps us from that goal, that ultimate goal, is a world around us that is constantly telling us to look out for ourselves. Uh, In today's day and age, we have completely glorified the hustle, the grind, uh, getting ours above everything else, Uh, The amount of self-help gurus that show up in YouTube ads and all over social media these days, uh, we, uh, you know, I don't know if we're the most intense me-centered culture ever, but it's not good, right? It's not great for us right now. As I was listening to music getting ready for this sermon, 
there was literally an ad for a playlist called Now You're the Main Character. There's a picture of a cat on it, which I don't know what that was. Um, but okay, Spotify. Um, but this is what we're taught in the world around us, right? That every single thought, every action that we have, everything that we experience should go through this filter of me. How does this affect me? What does this have to do with me? Uh, when in reality, the story of the gospel in Jesus uh, teaches us entirely that we are not the main characters of this story in the first place. So today I'm going to go over three main points. Um, I've gotten feedback that people like the three-point sermon, that Josh is great and he's a much better speaker than I, but he doesn't like three points. And uh, if I always say that if you put Josh and I together in a room and you had to have everybody vote and guess which one of us has the seminary degree, I would not win that vote. Um, but it is me. They can't take it away. I got it in the mail. <laughs> it was really bent, though. I don't know. I put that on Facebook. It was, like, really bent when I got it. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's about right. Anyway, so three main points we're going to go through today. Number one, pride as the great sin. Then we're going to talk about the relationship between pride and joy and ultimately talk about where we can find true joy uh, once we kind of talk about what it is. So what is this idea? Pride as the great sin. Well, it comes from... C.S. Lewis, he has a chapter about it in his book, Mere Christianity. Have any readers of this one? This is, a, yeah, kind of a Christian cult classic. Um, I read this book when I was 16. Wow, that's a lot for a 16-year-old. Man, C.S. Lewis did not write it for people in high school, I don't think. Uh, very heady language. I'm sure Josh understood it when he was 16. Um, but for the rest of us, uh, getting to go back through it now today when I was 26, uh, was a really cool experience to, to be able to understand it just a little bit better. Um, but the point he makes here about pride is the great sin is that he believes it is the sin that all other sin and evil derives from, that it's the source of all of these things. Uh, here's a quote from him. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites. One word, flea bites. In comparison, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's a lot, right? But when you actually start to look at some of these other sins, it starts to track. Let's think about greed. Greed is not just the desire to have money or to accumulate wealth. It's about having more than the person next to me. It's not about having enough to survive. Do you guys know it doesn't take that much money to survive, right? You know, all of us here are in the top 1% most likely of income in the world, right, compared to everybody else. Uh, but that's not what we focus on. We focus on having more than the person next to me. Uh, think about power. Power is about having power over people and wanting to be able to influence others because there's a pride in that, that I want more of this than the next person. Even when we think about something like drunkenness, like he mentions, drunkenness is just a coping mechanism coping mechanism because you don't have the other two things, right? That it's a way that we cope with not having enough money or enough power or something else. Um, and it's a way to forget and to ignore that actually our pride is wounded. Um, even the idea of wanting to be God, right? Think about the devil. The reason that he is who he is is because he wanted autonomy for himself to make his own choices about who he was as we do every single day. And that's just a pride. That's a pride thing that we have to go through. Because pride is inherently competitive. 
It's a competitive thing. Another quote from C.S. Lewis. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. So not only is this the great evil where all the things flow out of, but pride actually keeps us from seeing God for who he really is. If we think back to Josh's sermon last week um, when he, he talked about uh, the ending of the book of Job where Job is coming to God with all of these questions that he has about the, the suffering that he's been through and, and he's coming to God believing that there is a more equal footing between the two than maybe there necessarily is. Um, when he comes and he asks his questions and he believes they're closer, I think, than they actually are, like Josh talked about. We want the autonomy to be able to make decisions for ourselves and believe that we're worthy to come to God and have all of our questions answered. Uh, but we lack the credentials, kind of like Josh talked about, that it's not prideful for God to say he is God and to just be God. And it's different for us. Uh, we, we are not in the same plane of existence. We have giftings. We have talents. Many of those things themselves are God-breathed because a lot of the good things about us are from God in the first place, right? And so if we're going to take pride in them and believe that we can then be the God of our own lives, uh, imagine what would happen if God took away the stuff that he gave us in the first place, right? Um, and if we actually go to the scoreboard about which one of us is better at being God, uh, you start to notice some zeros on your side. Uh, for example, this all these are examples from the book of Job. Um, how many clouds have we made in the room between all of us? We got zero? Nobody? Vaping does not count. Uh, okay. Uh, how many constellations have we organized? Is it? Nope. Nobody? Okay. Um, did you guys know, and again, this is from the book of Job. I'm not making this up. There is a storehouse where they keep all of the snow. Did, do any of you know where it is? If I knew where it was, I would lock it and throw away the key. Um, I can say that I'm from the north. Uh, nothing, right? Uh, it's, you know, it's the ant in the supercomputer. We're playing a whole different ball game from God that I have this desire in my life, this pride to want to be the God of my own life, uh, but I lack all of the elements necessary to do such a thing. Um, so we're talking about pride as this great evil and, and this thing that's bad, and I'm not just making it up. It's not just something that Paul talks about. Um, it's all throughout scripture. Um, just big, I'm going to name off a bunch of them for them. Let's go rapid style. Leviticus 26, 18. These are, these are going to be out of context. It's okay. Just trust me that what we're doing here is there's pride. There's a lot of pride. It's a problem. It's always been a problem. Yeah. 26, 18. If after all this, you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. I love Leviticus. Isaiah 2, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Even Jesus, uh, when he's giving the sermon on the mount in Matthew 5, verses 3, 4, and 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Finally here, even the psalmist David in Psalm 10, 
In his arrogance, the wicked man huts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Keep that last verse four in your mind. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. So what we can see is that pride changes our perspective. It changes the way that we look at ourselves and the world around us. That it causes us to look down instead of looking up. And God's not down there when we look down. Uh, like Josh said, humility, the humility that we're called through, called to uh, through Philippians, through what we see in the example of Jesus, it causes, it wants us to have a posture below, below all of these things, and to look up, just like Jesus did. When we bring that posture, uh, we have the opportunity to beat pride, um, to spurn it for God's love and adoration, and then God reveals himself to us when we do those things. And we start to come more into line uh, with the way God sees us. And we get to see our true value, our true potential, what it means to love people. And we get to experience what actual true joy is. Which brings me to point number two. So pride and joy. I think a lot of the time we confuse these two things. That we think we are experiencing joy when in reality we are taking pride in something instead. I got a couple examples here. I got a couple stories. I'm going to start with the bad one. The one where maybe it wasn't joy. I'm going to get vulnerable with you guys here for a minute, okay? I don't look good in this story. This is a bad story. Um, one of the cool things about being in a different church is that you, you get to, you know, retell your stories. But I keep using this story and I don't look very good in it. Um, so, so come along with me here. I was 15, maybe 16, 16 years old. Um, do you guys have a thing here in North Carolina called Poetry Out Loud? Do any high schoolers know what I'm talking about? No? You're lucky. Um, so it's this national-wide competition, because uh, everything is a competition, right? Even poetry. Um, where you have people come up and do readings, memorized readings of poetry. Um, and, and, you know, there's like a dramatization aspect of it where you're like telling it from the character's perspective or whoever wrote it. And it was a required thing that we did uh, my sophomore year of high school where our entire English class, everybody had to get up and do it, um, and they were graded on it, and then the person who did the best, who got the best grade, um, based on the scoring system, uh, would go to our school-wide competition. And I wanted to win. Uh, I've always been a good public speaker. Um, I don't know why. I don't know if it's genetic or uh, my mom is a professor of communications at the college level. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I have no idea. I've just always been good at it. Um, and so I'm like, yeah, I want to win. I can do that. That sounds easy. Um, the problem was the way I went about wanting to win, where I was very vocal telling everybody in my class that I was going to win, uh, which I'm insufferable in this story, okay? To the, the, orient yourselves to that right now, that I am insufferable in this story. Um, but I worked hard at it, and... Uh, Everybody in the class, there were definitely kids in the class who worked harder to try to beat me at it. Um, to no avail, because I did still win our class competition. Uh, and when we got to the day when our teacher announced it, you could tell the disappointment in his face when he was saying it. Because he didn't want me to win. Because, again, I was the worst. I didn't deserve to win. I did deserve to win because I was the best. But, like, <laughs> emotionally, I didn't. We're all works in progress, Pam. 
Uh, some of us more than others. Uh, I'm really I'm trying to embody a character right now for you guys. Can okay? Can, all right. Um, and so he's disappointed, but he announces it anyway. And the kids had clapped for everybody else who got like second and third. They did not clap for me when I won. They they audibly groaned. <laughs> for those of you in the video, my wife just said it doesn't stop there, which because you would think you would think that moment that would be like a watershed moment where a person would realize, right? Where it's like oh no, I've done something wrong. Like this is not how humans are supposed to react to each other. Like this is the moment of change. That is not what happened in this story. What, what happened is that I got out of my chair and I did that. And I did that to everybody. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school. Um, not, not until I met my wife uh, when I was a junior. Um, the point of that story, <laughs> besides making you want to hate me, uh, is that I I don't like poetry. I still don't like poetry. I, I had I took no joy in anything that I did. I thought I did. I thought it was joy. But looking back now, I can really clearly see I was just prideful about my own abilities, about the fact that I could talk smack to all those kids and still beat them, you know? And that's not true joy because now I look back on that just with cringe everywhere. It's so bad, guys. Um, it's a miracle any of those people still talk to me. One of the, my brother was in that class too. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Anyway. Uh, and that's what pride, that's what pride looks like. That's when we take pride in something instead of finding joy in it. Um, let me give you another example, a better example here of what it looks like to actually enjoy something. So I play guitar sometimes. Uh, when I was first learning to play guitar, this is, this is going to require the, the teeniest amount of music theory. Stay with me here. The easiest key to play in is G on the guitar. It's, it's you know, su super easy. Everybody can learn it, I feel like. And uh, I think it was, a, it was a tweet from Andy Squires, who's a vineyard person, who once said, why on earth would I learn a third guitar chord? The two I know work fine. That's G. That's the key of G. It's the three chords and you're good to go. Jess is giving me the praise hand in the back. Um... And you get a capo, and you move it up and down your guitar, and you can play anything. Um, doesn't always sound great, but you can play anything. And um, and so I did that. When I first learned, learned to play worship guitar, I just learned G and put that bad boy anywhere. But my mentor was really insistent that I learn how to play in the key of A, which is way less fun. Um, and it's only two things up. It's only like it's so easy. It sounds the same. It's the most it's the most innocent capo use there is, right? And every single song I sing is in A for some reason. I don't know why. And the key of A sucks to play, and it is not fun at all. But I learned it. I learned it anyway because my mentor was insistent. Um, and because all the other people in the worship team at that time, back home, knew how to play in that key. They, they didn't have to put the capo on too. And so I looked silly when everybody else was just ready to roll, and I'm like, let me move the capo up. So I learned how to play it, and I played A like that pretty much everywhere I went after that for, for a while until one day it just kind of hit me that I didn't like playing in that key and I was only doing it for other people. I don't have a problem moving that capo up two things. It's innocent. It's fine. Nobody gets hurt. It's all good. And I just, I made the decision one day to just say, I'm done playing in this key. I wasn't doing it for me. I wasn't getting any joy out of it. It was purely pride that made me learn that stupid set of notes. Uh, not that we shouldn't try to get better at things, but, you know, not always. And so now I play G Capo 2 a lot. And it's easy. And I find joy in it. 
Truly, it, it doesn't matter to me. If you can play in the key of A, that's great. I don't care. That's great for you. I'm glad. My fingers don't move that well. You know, that F sharp's ridiculous. Um, and so I stopped doing that, and I have found true joy. I don't think about it. It's easier to worship. It's just better. It's better when we don't have to worry about that other stuff. It's just prideful. It's silly, right? It feels silly, right? Just to talk about it as like a guitar cable. But truly, it's a source of joy. All little things like that are, and that's how pride seeps into every little thing that we do. So I'm going to give us a quick caveat here as I'm talking about this. Being praised and acknowledged are not inherently bad things. They're not. Um, I think there's biblical precedent for them. Uh, the Song of Solomon is just two people praising each other back and forth, and that's it. Don't read your Bible. Um, the parents in the room got that one. And Matthew 25, uh, Jesus tells a parable, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, There's precedent for that kind of praise and honoring of each other. Um, but the key is that with pride involved, we have to find a middle ground for it um, because we can't become people that are ruled by praise and honor where it's all that we seek in life. Everything I do is so that people will love and respect me and give me praise. At the same time, we can't be a people who are so stuck being perfectionists that we cannot be convinced that we've done a good job, that we can't allow ourselves to be honored and praised because it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what I think I did, right? Have you ever, like, given a presentation or, you know, done something in front of people and everybody comes after and tells you, oh, I did a great job. You can only hear and see the things you did wrong. And that's your reality. You are not letting any other reality come in that other people may have actually enjoyed what you did or said. You know, for people who come up here and do this preaching thing, that's really easy to get into that, to that mindset, that you only see the, the notes that I missed or the fact that I told a bad story for 10 minutes instead of making a better point about pride, right? That's what we do to ourselves. Um, but that's also pride. It's when we're valuing our own opinions over everything else. It's just as much pride as needing that attention. It's the exact same. And it's, it's how pride gets into every single little thing that we do. Um, but that's not to say that being praised and acknowledged are bad inherently. Does that make sense? All right. We're tracking. <laughs> Good job. Thanks, Jim. Okay. So when we're talking about pride and joy and s disseminating between the two, we, I think we can evaluate every single little thing that we do in our lives to check for it. Truly, I do. Um, if we think about our jobs, right? Is the reason I enjoy my job because I'm better than my coworkers at it, right? That I just, I like being right all the time. I like being good. I'm trying not to look at my wife right now. Um, not you, honey. It's everyone else. Um, <laughs> uh, but we all do that, right? I mean, I love, I love doing worship here at this church. It's my favorite thing to do. If we hired Matt Redman tomorrow, I think I would enjoy it less. <laughs> Just to be truly transparent with you. Because uh, it's hard. It's hard to be surrounded by people that are better than you at what you do. And I think there's always a part of me that enjoys being good at it, right? Um, and so I think it's important to evaluate that stuff. Do I enjoy my job? Do I enjoy the things that I'm doing? Or is it just because I get to look better than people? Um, even uh, in our relationships with other people. Um, I only hang out with my boss outside of work because I feel like it's what I'm supposed to do or... Um, I, I like what he can do for me. I like hanging out with this couple because they're cool and people at church like them. Uh, and I want people to think I'm cool. And I want people to like me. 
I'm not saying any of us do this stuff. This is all very generalized. Um, unlike the last one, that one was from my wife. But this one's general. Uh, I'm just kidding, honey. You're fine. Uh, even with our kids, right? That, you know, we all have that coworker, right? Like Brad, who stops by to let me know how his, how his kid did at Travel Ball over the weekend. If I have to hear Brad talk about his kid at Travel Ball one more time, I'm going to throw the water cooler at him, right? It's, I, I'm sure his kid loves it, but Brad is getting the wrong lesson out of it, right? That he's taking pride in what his kid's doing, and he's potentially pushing something onto his kids purely because of the way it makes him feel, instead of actually looking at his kid and asking him what they want to do and letting them do whatever they want. So just some points, some things to actually think about that the different sort of things that pride can eke its way into. So let's talk about what joy actually looks like then. If we see all the different ways that pride can affect us, what does joy actually look like? I think joy means a freedom from the burden of meeting people's standards and expectations. That I can play in whatever key I want to play in and put the capo anywhere on the guitar I want to put it and not worry about what people think. It means no longer doing things because you think they make you look better. It's about being able to accept criticism and grow from it instead of being offended by it. That we can actually take the things that people tell us and instead of immediately being hurt by it or completely disregarding it because, well, I don't need your opinion. I know what I'm doing. We do neither of those things. Is that we take a word, hey, Ethan, don't tell such a weird story about poetry next time, and I can take that and I can actually analyze it and say, this person's right. That was a bad story. And, and actually take that to heart. Or I can say, no, that story was cool. And I can put it down because it's not my criticism. It doesn't matter. Uh, there's, there's joy in that freedom, folks. Um, being able, to, again, to take honor and recognition without growing dependent on it. To actually be able to, for my wife to tell me that I did a good job preaching today and actually accept that instead of uh, just throwing it off because, well, she's my wife. She has to tell me that. She doesn't. She doesn't every time. I don't, yeah, you might. Yeah, doesn't matter. And finally, it means not having a high or a low opinion of ourselves. Um, it's about not having an opinion of ourselves. So what does that mean? This is where we get into the third point. This is two ways I think we can actually get after and find this joy. Now, I apologize to the youth because you guys got a really half-baked version of this that I'm going to talk about, the self-forgetfulness, because I knew the, the day of that I had to preach that I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And it's going to be much better today. You guys can tell the other kids that you got a much better version of it this time. Uh, but we're going to talk about self-forgetfulness. So going back to that quote from Psalm 10.4, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Self-forgetfulness is about making room for God in our minds. Uh I don't know if you guys remember a quote last week. Uh, Josh actually repeated it twice from William Temple because he's like, this is such a good quote. I should have put it in a slide. Learn. Learn from others, folks. Take the good quotes and put them in your slide. This is the same one from last week. Uh, it says, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself at all. Ultimately, I think self-forgetfulness is clearing space in our thinking away from what we think or what others think. But instead, we take that space in our minds, that processing power, and we fill it the way Jesus filled it. 
We fill it with the needs of others. We fill it with the tangible love and presence of God, and we pour it out for other people in our communities. I think that's what it means to be self-forgetful. It means that when we wake up, we don't have to go out and earn love, earn purpose, earn favor from anybody. I actually think this is what makes the Christian faith very generally uh, and, and Jesus different, and I would even say better than other faith traditions, right? For example, when Buddhists wake up, every day they live their lives having to follow the eightfold path, and there's an expectation for the certain way that they live their lives. In Islam, they have to follow the five pillars and, and ultimately doing good that outweighs the bad. And in Judaism, there's an expectation that you live a holy and righteous life, and you have to do this every single day in order to earn what we're talking about, purpose, love, favor, joy, all of those things. You have to go out and earn them every single day. Uh, but there's a different way. Christianity calls us to a different way. Uh, this is a metaphor that's used by Tim Keller. Uh, he likes it, the late Timothy Keller, rest in peace, uh, where he uses, uh, he likens it every single day to waking up and going into a courtroom. And in these other lifestyles, like we, that's a courtroom. Uh, I think it's in Japan, actually. Just kidding, it doesn't matter. All right. Other lifestyles, like you know, some of the other religions that I was talking about, you wake up, and every day you go into the courtroom, and you're on trial. And every single thing you do and think are actions that are taken into evidence. When you do good, that's the stuff that goes to the d your defense. And when you do bad, that stuff goes to the prosecution. And every single day, you're just trying to win the case uh, that you know, you're a good person or that you're worthy to be loved or that you deserve salvation when you die or you're just hopelessly winning this trial every day and hoping that someone will actually notice and see that you're a good person and acknowledge it. That's the expectation in other you know, lifestyles and religions and ways to live our lives. The performance, in this case, leads to the verdict. But in Christianity, the verdict was declared like over 2,000 years ago. Um, Romans 8.1.2 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Jesus went on trial for sin and shame that weren't his, and he was found guilty of crimes he didn't commit. And he did those things in humility so that you and I don't have to go into that courtroom every single day. And instead, we take that time and that effort and that attention, and we give it to him. And we start to learn who he is, and we get to see the world how he sees it. And we get to see his people how he sees them. And we get to love them the way he loves them. Because there's nothing that you or I can do or say in that courtroom that holds a candle to what Jesus has already done for us. Which he has done for us to not go there in the first place. And yet so often, we choose to go anyway. That I'm going to walk into this courtroom and, and try to fight to deserve these things when there is no court in session for me. Not, not as a Christ follower. There's nobody there. I'm there of my own accord. I can leave whenever I want. I just have to be self-forgetful. Pride wants us to believe that we have to stay there. Pride wants us to believe that we don't deserve joy, that we don't deserve to be fulfilled, to be loved, and that we have to go out and earn it every single day. But humility, self-forgetfulness, and the Jesus way teaches us that there's nothing to earn, 
and there's nothing to deserve in the first place. We should not see people as above us or below us, but we should just see people. We should see people who God loves dearly. And so we should just go ahead and do the same thing in kind and love them dearly. We should cheer each other on in all of our successes and community. We pick each other up in the hard times in the valleys. That's what it means to say no to pride and trade it for joy, especially in our communities. So we have self-forgetfulness as a path, I think, to joy. Uh, but I mentioned that I think there's another thing, um, and it came up in pre-service prayer this morning. I think, God, the Pavels in the past have talked about getting those, like, nuggets from pre-service prayer where it's like, oh, that confirms everything I'm talking about. Thank goodness. That is a great feeling. Would recommend. Anyway. Uh, the second thing that sets us free uh, from pride, I think, is obedience. It's realizing that it's not my ship, and I don't have to steer it if I don't want to. Uh, because for some reason, there are times that I've convinced myself that my plan for my life is the absolute best thing available. And that's ridiculous, right? Um, it's like driving a stock. <laughs> I literally wrote this. I'm going to say it, but I'm not crazy about it, so stay with me. It's like driving a stock car with Jeff Gordon in the back seat and telling him, I've got this, dude. Don't worry. I think I wrote that at 1 a.m. a couple days ago, guys. Uh, <laughs> this is this was at 1.30. Uh, I'm doing one of those paint-by-the-number pictures with, with Van Gogh in the background, and I'm telling him, don't worry, I got this. And anyone who knows me, I can't color in the lines to save my life. Uh, you know, neither did he. <laughs> See, because at, at first I put Picasso, but Picasso didn't. That's not what he did. That Anyway, uh, my degree's in history, not art. Anyway, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that my life, the picture of my life is not mine to paint. The NASCAR race that is my life is not my race to run. Um, and there is joy available when we give that steering wheel up. Truly. Um, again, this is another story I've told before, um, but not here, so you're welcome. Uh, when I was graduating college, uh, when I was graduating from Michigan State, I only had one job offer out of college. Um, I went and interviewed at a uh, medical software company out in Wisconsin. Um, they, I don't know anything about software engineering or anything, but this is a place that teaches you their own code and shows you how to do everything. Um, and they wanted me for their QA team. So I went out and did an entire week-long interview process with eight different people who I didn't know. And it took a whole weekend, and it was really stressful and hard. Um, because at that time, Chris and I had no idea what we were going to do. Um, we knew she was going to be an accountant. I was going to get a degree and, I don't know, maybe go to seminary. I wasn't sure. Um, but this presented a new path where, you know, I could make a living and provide for us, and we could move to Wisconsin and be happy and, um, you know. At the time, Kristen was not crazy about moving out of Michigan uh, to go somewhere else. <laughs> Good thing we didn't do that. Um, uh, and, and so I go through this entire job process. I'm pretty excited about it. I, I think it'd be really cool to work in that industry. And I'm telling Kristen all this. And I'm sure she was pretending to be excited for me, again, not wanting to move. And she was like, yeah, whatever you say, hon. Uh, no, Kristen was always very supportive, and obviously she would have picked up and moved to a different state for me. Thanks, hon. You were right. Uh, you kept your end of the bargain. Uh, but I didn't know what we were supposed to do, truly. I had no idea. And as I was sitting at the airport gate uh, at the Madison, Wisconsin airport, 
I just went, I went to God and, and I was just like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do right now. If I'm supposed to take this job or what you want. Like, and so let me, and at this point I've, I've let God into the little stuff here and there, but never like a big life thing. I just kind of lived it up to this point. I didn't ask God where I was supposed to go to college or what I was supposed to major in. I just, you know, kind of did my thing and, you know, waited for doors to slam. Uh, but I was really intentional about it this time. I was just like, God, what do you want me to do? Like, what am like, should I take this job? Because, you know, I had a feeling I was going to get it. Okay. A little bit of the insufferableness was still there, maybe. doesn't matter. Uh, and I just really, for the first time in my life, really clearly heard the voice of the Lord say, no, I have something different for you. And the words sound like rejection, but it feels like the greatest hug of all time to hear the, the Lord's voice. And to just feel this immediate sense of, like, it's it's impossible to explain, but I'm going to try anyway. Like, he was proud of me for having gone out there and done all that stuff anyway. Because he wanted me to, because he knew I'd come to him. That this is what it was going to take for me to come to him in that moment. And I have never experienced joy or love like that. Ever. Ever since that moment. I got a kid coming in 13 weeks. She's got a high bar. I think she's going to clear it, but she got a high bar. 13 days? Did I say weeks? My 38-week pregnant wife is insistent it's not 13 more weeks. Uh, and and so now I'm in the airport b- like a baby, blubbering, like, oh, it's bad. Like, there was, a, there was a couple small children and their parents, they were looking at me like I was a crazy person. Because I was just, you know, I was sitting there with my headphones in, no music playing, and just like ugly crying like in the middle of the airport. Um... And I just told, I just texted Kristen after that, hey, I don't think we're supposed to go here. And I never rethought it. Not once did I feel anything, any anything bad about it. It was just super clear from that moment. And it didn't take long after that until um, I finished college and uh, we ended up doing seminary and all that stuff. Um, but there's joy. There's joy in giving up the wheel. He wants every single one of us to experience that. It's available to us even today, that tangible experience with God. It's available to us even today. The psalmist in Psalm 106 writes, Your word is a lamp that guides my feet and a lamp a lamp and a light for my path. I've promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous commands. Uh, Jess, if you want to come back up. Uh, we're going to go into a time of ministry here um, before we wrap up. In our ministry time here at uh, here at the Vineyard, there's an opportunity to get prayer for anything from anyone. We believe that. That you can go to your neighbor and ask for prayer on something, and your neighbor will either be a trooper and help you, and or they'll send you to someone who will. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, and I believe that that this morning, that if you have any need at all in prayer, there are people here who desperately want to pray with you and to walk you through those things. But I feel like God is calling us to two specific prompts this morning when it comes to our ministry time. The first is if you would like to forget yourself this morning and see yourself the way God sees you, to see the world the way he sees it, to see his people the way he sees them. And if that's you this morning, if, if you've decided that pride has taken over too much of your life it's seeped into all the little corners and you want to be a little less like you and a little more like Jesus uh, 
there's prayer available for that today to help walk you through that. And second, if you want to see what it looks like to have your life with God in control, whether it's a recommitment, re-promising your life to him, or if there are people in here who have never uh, accepted God into their heart, who, who don't know who Jesus is, and, and want, want to see what it looks like for Jesus to have the ship, to take control of the whole thing, for him to be, you know, your personal Lord and Savior. Uh, I, would, I would personally love to pray with you for that, if, if that is on your heart this morning. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us. Jess is going to play us out. Um, I'll come back up and actually dismiss us after the song is over. Um, so feel free to worship here. Um, have a heart-to-heart with God if you need to this morning. Uh, but we're just going to seek after him for just a few minutes. So, Heavenly Father, would you come in your power this morning? I pray that you would meet people in this room exactly where they are in the exact way that they need to hear you this morning. Holy Spirit, come and descend on your people. Father, if there are needs that need to be dealt with or touched in prayer, I ask that you would make that apparent, that you would give us boldness to seek out people to help us with those things. And Father, if there is anyone here who wants to know you more deeply, Father, I just ask that you would call them forward today to step into that. Father, it's in your name we ask for these things. Amen.